welcome to episode three of A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science in the City podcasts, brought to you by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode three, Fire in Your Belly. As I promised at the end of episode two of this series, we're going to talk next about the most maligned nutrients, the scary nutrients, the ones we all try to avoid when we're eating healthy. And it would be hard to name two nutrients that have gotten more bad press than fat and sugar. Just think of the volume of low fat and reduced sugar foods that are available in every grocery store in the country, up to and including sugar-free candy and fat-free sour cream. With all of that energy put into removing them from our diets, surely these are things that are incontrovertibly bad for us. The truth is that fats and sugars are some of the most important things we eat. We literally could not live without them. There are a whole bunch of reasons why that is, but today we're gonna to talk about what might be the most important reason. Because fat, specifically a kind of fats called fatty acids, and sugar, most especially a sugar called glucose, are our body's two favorite things to break down into a substance called adenosine triphosphate, or ATP. And ATP is energy. It's literally the energy that keeps every system in our body moving and working. To explain, here Dr. Julie Jones, Professor Emerita of Nutrition at St. Catharines University in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Dr. Franz Seligson, an independent nutritional consultant. In order to do anything whether I'm growing hair or cells or whatever I'm doing, I have to have energy. I have to have some way to do that. And in the body, it's high-energy phosphate bonds, or ATP, adenosine triphosphate. You know, let me put it this way. You can't drive a car, you can't run a lawnmower or a leaf blower if you don't put fuel in it. Well, we can't survive if we don't have fuel that we're putting in our body. Your energy needs are growth if you're a young child, uh, physical activity, or just the usual, if you're sitting down, your body has to produce energy to make your heart pump, your brain work, your kidneys work. If you remember the last episode of this series, when we were talking about antioxidants, we compared the body to a train. Now, think of it specifically as an old-fashioned steam train. The locomotive runs by burning fuel, coal or firewood in a big furnace, and using the heat to turn water into steam. And that steam is what makes the wheels go around and gets the train moving. Well, your body works in a very similar way. But instead of one central furnace, there's a tiny furnace in every single living cell, in a part of the cell called the mitochondria. ATP is the steam that those furnaces produce. The mitochondria are really like the little powerhouses of the cells. Carbohydrates as glucose typically, they'll combust uh, fats as the fatty acids get broken down, and even excess protein that we, we consume. All of these go into the mitochondria for combustion. And what happens in the mitochondria is very much like a burning fire. It requires a constant supply of oxygen and produces carbon dioxide as a byproduct. We provide the oxygen and expel the CO2 by breathing. Here's Dr. Jones again. And that's why, you know, when you're exercising, they talk, breathing becomes so important because you really need that infusion of oxygen 
if it, there's not enough oxygen, you build up lactic acid, and that's what gives you a side ache. And just like our mitochondria need a constant supply of oxygen, they also need a constant supply of fuel. Fat, sugar, protein, and alcohol are all different fuels that they can burn to produce ATP. We measure the fuel potential of different foods in calories, which are a unit of heat, the potential heat that can be produced by burning that particular food. Calories are units of heat, and so that's what we've chosen to... um, But you need so many calories to power the body, and so we could, as the Europeans do, talk about ergs and joules, because joules are a measure of energy output. We need to produce a steady, unwavering flow of ATP all the time, no matter what we're doing, even when we're asleep. Because otherwise, our engines will stop altogether. And we have a very simple name for that happening. It's called dying. Understandably, our bodies have all kinds of systems in place to make sure that the flow of ATP continues unbroken. Those different kinds of fuels we just mentioned each travel down different paths to get broken down into a form that can be burned in the mitochondria. Today, we're going to talk about two of those pathways, the one for glucose and the one for fatty acids, because they're the ones we use most often, and because between them, they show how subtle and interconnected these energy production systems, which collectively are known as your metabolism, really are. Let's start with glucose, which is a simple sugar. Now, when we talk about sugar, We're not just talking about dessert, we're talking about carbohydrates, which basically are molecules built out of carbon and water. A carbohydrate is a substance which is made up of sugar units. Literally, hydrates of carbon. Hydrate meaning um, coming from water. Anything we eat that's starchy, bread, pasta, potatoes, as well as anything sweet, are mostly carbohydrate and therefore mostly made of sugars. And they're broken down in our system into some amount of just two simple sugars, glucose and fructose. Bread and pasta are mostly glucose. What we think of as sugar, the white powder we put in coffee and bake into cakes, is basically 50% glucose and 50% fructose. We'll talk about fructose at length in an upcoming episode of this series, but for now there's quite a lot to say about glucose. Glucose is our favorite source of short-term energy because its metabolic pathway is simple and efficient and it can be stored for short-term use in a unique way by packing it away in our liver. If we think of our mitochondria as steam engines and glucose as firewood, you can think of the liver as one of the two engineers controlling the flow of fuel to the fire. Here's Dr. Lewis Cantley, professor of systems biology at Harvard Medical School and director of cancer research at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Because the liver really is a sorting place for sugars in the body and what it converts them to and how to store them and when to make them. The other engineer is the pancreas, which controls how much glucose is taken up by the mitochondria by secreting a hormone called insulin. Whenever you eat sugar, the level of glucose and or fructose in your blood goes up and that tells the pancreas to secrete insulin. The insulin then goes off to the liver, fat, and muscle, and the insulin tells those tissues to take up the glucose. This creates a neat little feedback loop. We eat carbohydrates, 
and the small intestine breaks them down into individual glucose molecules, which are then carried to the liver. If the liver doesn't sense any glucose in the bloodstream already, it knows that the mitochondria are low on fuel right then, so it sends glucose into the blood to be carried around the body. The pancreas senses the glucose in the bloodstream and secretes insulin, which tells the mitochondria to take in the glucose and burn it. Once they've taken it in, there's no more in the blood, so the flow of insulin stops, and the liver knows to start the flow of fuel again so that it stays constant and steady. To control the flow of glucose over time, the liver can store it in a kind of ready-access hopper by temporarily converting it into a substance called glycogen. It's important that the flow of glucose remains steady, because there are some cells in your body whose mitochondria much prefer to run on glucose than on any other kind of fuel. Amongst these are the cells that make up your brain. Yeah, so the brain, for reasons that we don't fully understand, much more requires glucose as an energy source. It may, due to the, the rate at which uh, ATP needs to be synthesized in the brain, uh, in any event, uh, this is why the glucose level has to be so tightly regulated by insulin. Glycogen is a rapid way to store sugar so that it can be released rapidly. And that's what happens during the night. First thing you do is start burning the glycogen that had been stored up during the day when you were eating, so the brain has plenty to survive. Here's Dr. Jones again. Breakfast really is rightly named in that you can have about enough glycogen to store for a night, and that's you break the fast because at this point you don't have very much glucose available because you've been using the liver glycogen as you slept. If the glycogen storage is full, or if you take in too much glucose all at once for it to be stored in the glycogen, the excess gets packed away in a different long-term storage system by transforming it into fatty acid molecules, which are then packaged into units called triglycerides, which are stored all around the body as body fat. This is a bit like compressing the firewood into charcoal and putting it into a coal car at the back of the train. It's lighter, more compact, and has more potential energy per unit, but it's much harder to access. Here's Dr. Seligson. If you're consuming more energy, more calories than what you need, then your body's going to start shunning all this excess energy into fat synthesis. Now, creating body fat is something else we think of as unequivocally bad. But having the right amount of fat in our bodies is actually really important. It's long-term energy storage we can call on when we need it, and it has a bunch of other important functions also. Here's Dr. Jones again. You know, a certain amount of fat is healthy. You want um, some triglyceride around your internal organs, like uh, those popcorn things when you're sending a package. They actually protect some vital organs. Fat allows for us to synthesize critical hormones. And um, so we want, uh, for women, about um, 20 to 25% of our body should be fat. So it's a question of, the body out of balance, rather than that this is bad and that is good. The body can get out of balance from either not taking in enough fuel it can store and burn for energy, or too much. If we've run completely out of fuel, we're not eating anything, there's no glycogen or body fat left to keep the engine running, our internal train crew will get resourceful and start burning whatever it can find, throwing in the luggage, ripping out the seats, even tearing down the walls and frame of the train cars. This desperate dismantling of the body for want of energy is called malnourishment. 
If you get to the stage where too much of the train has been dismantled for it to keep running, that's starvation. On the other hand, we can also eat too much and become overloaded with stored fat. Think of a small locomotive struggling to climb a hill while dragging a hundred extra cars overflowing with backup coal. This is called obesity. Now, let's turn our attention from the fat we produce in our bodies by eating sugar to the fat that we eat directly. Here's Maudine Nelson, a registered dietitian from the Institute of Human Nutrition at Columbia University. Fat is a very important source of fuel or calories. It's the most dense source of fuel, and without it, you would be, you'd probably have a hard time maintaining your weight. For every one gram of fat, you get nine calories, and that's when comparing it to protein. For every one gram of protein, you get four. For every one gram of carbohydrate, which is our nice way of saying sugars and starches, you get, again, approximately four. So for the same mouthful, you're getting a lot more calories out of fat. You also get more satisfaction. This idea of satisfaction, or satiety, to use the technical term, may sound beside the point, but what it means is that by eating fats as part of a meal, we can feel full sooner than if we just eat carbs by themselves. So we end up eating less total. That full feeling is also connected with food staying in the stomach a bit longer, so that it can digest a little more thoroughly before moving on to the intestines. So we know that for a meal to not exit the stomach too quickly, it should contain some amount of fat, and the fat can be as a cooking base, such as when you saute or, or, or fry, or it can be part of a, a, a blending, such as mayonnaise when you put together egg salad or tuna salad. And then the fat can be an, an intrinsic ingredient in foods like nuts and cheese, and whenever we eat um, any kind of meat or poultry or fish. And dietary fat does a lot of other important things also. For instance, vitamins A, D, E, and K are not water-soluble, and so they cannot be absorbed into our system unless we eat them with fat. So fat is not bad. We have to have fat. In fact, you will have a fatty acid deficiency if you eat no fat at all, and it will eventually lead to death through gradual organ failure. So we shouldn't be maligning it. Whenever we eat a fatty food, butter, oil, cheese, meat, nuts, we're eating a combination of three distinct kinds of fats, phospholipids, cholesterol esters, and triglycerides, which are just like the triglycerides we make when we store excess sugar. In fact, the cow makes the triglycerides in beef the same way, by eating carbohydrates, grass or hay or corn, and storing the excess calories. While all three of these kinds of fats are very important to our health for different reasons, today we're going to concentrate on triglycerides, which are the largest percentage of the fat we eat, and the only one of the three kinds that we can burn for energy. Each triglyceride is a molecule made of three smaller molecules called fatty acids stuck together onto a kind of backbone. When we eat foods that contain triglycerides, we break them down into individual fatty acids, just like we broke down the carbohydrates into individual glucose molecules. Getting the fatty acids to the mitochondria for combustion into ATP is a very different process, though, because sugar and fat are very different kinds of substances. To explain, here's Dr. Elizabeth Parks, an associate professor in the Department of Clinical Nutrition at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. 
fat has the property of being very unlike water. So it, its chemical structure is such that it, um, it's hydrophobic. It dislikes water. So water and oil don't mix. If you want to understand fat, the fact that it doesn't mix with water is the key, is the key thing. This is important because our bodies are largely made of water, maybe as much as 60% of our total body weight. And the blood plasma that we use to transport nutrients around our body is almost all water. So when we digest something that is strongly hydrophobic, we have to use a really complicated packaging system to put it into a form that we can transport around the body. So um, the, the interesting thing to me about fat, and again, I'm going to compare it to glucose or sugars, which are water-soluble, or proteins, which break down to amino acids, which are water-soluble. So if you eat starch, if you eat rice, it comes in as a string of a whole bunch of glucose molecules. They go into your intestine, and they're broken down into single glucose molecules. And those are absorbed by themselves, and so you have single glucose molecules entering the blood. They go from the water of, of the inside of your intestine in through the intestinal cell, and in the cell it's water, it's a water environment, so they're soluble, and then they move into your blood, which is a water environment. And so you absorb glucose pretty quickly after you eat. The problem with fats is that they are not water-loving, and so every time you move them from one place to another in your body, you have to break them down and put them back together. So, for instance, a triglyceride in butter uh, that might be on your toast, you eat that, it goes into the intestine, it's a triglyceride with three fatty acids stuck to a backbone of glycerol, and an enzyme clips off each of those fatty acids. And now you have a free fatty acid, which is transferred into your intestinal cell. And your intestinal cell puts them back together um, before it can do anything else. So now you make a triglyceride again out of the pieces, and you do that in your intestine. Then you take 10,000 of those triglycerides and pack them on a big ball and wrap it with proteins so that it will be water-soluble because you're about to send a big glob of oil into the blood, and the blood is water. So you've got to make this big basketball full of oil, wrap it with protein, and then it doesn't even go into the blood. Then it gets put into your lymph, which is less water-like. It's, more of a, uh, it's got more fat in floating in solution. It goes from the lymph all the way up into your heart and dumps into the uh, left side of the heart. So, so far, we've taken triglycerides and broken them down into individual fatty acids, then repackaged them back into triglycerides, lumped them together into a 10,000-molecule fat ball that's been transported halfway across the body to the heart. From the heart, the fat ball finally gets sent into the bloodstream, but we're still only half done with this process. Second step is there is an enzyme, just like the one in the intestine, and it's floating in plasma. It's stuck such that it's anchored to the tissue cell, to the endothelium, the lining of the, the capillary, and it's floating like a tree in the water, you know, with its, with its uh, branches floating. Along comes this ball of 10,000 triglyceride molecules that docks, and that enzyme is a lipase, and it breaks the triglyceride back down to free fatty acids again, which get transferred into the cell, and what does the cell do? it makes them back into triglycerides once more. And so what did we do? We took triglyceride and broke it down to fatty acids in the intestine. 
made triglyceride again, put it in a ball, sent it out to the body. Now to get it into my muscle, I got to break it back down to fatty acids again, cross the cell membrane, make a triglyceride, which is an oil droplet, and now that's inside the muscle. And before the muscle can use that, it's got to break it back down to fatty acids once more. So why do we have to do all these complex and ridiculously redundant steps? Breaking it apart and putting it back together and then moving it somewhere else to break it apart and put it back together and then breaking it apart and putting it back together again. We have to because fatty acid isn't just incompatible with water. It's actually dangerous to a water-based environment. If they were single water-loving molecules, you could move one at a time. But because they're they're fat-soluble because they're oil molecules, they have to be processed so that they don't dissolve the body. And to do that, there's this huge system set up. Um, and every time you move them around, you have to take them apart and put them back together again. Whereas glucose, you only do that once. You, it's in starch, it comes in in glucose, you store it as glycogen. When you need it, you break it back down to a single molecule of glucose that gets burned. And it moves from one cell to the other and you know, travels in the blood as a single, really tiny molecule. There's an easy example of what happens when free fatty acids and water combine. The fatty acid itself is a soap and would be dangerous to the body if it were free. So it's packaged in an oil, a triglyceride. You said it's a soap? Yeah, dishwashing liquid is a perfect example of a free fatty acid-like effect. A free fatty acid has a water-loving end and an oil-loving end. And if you've seen the commercials, that the, the oil droplet that's in your clothes gets surrounded <laughs> and made soluble in the water because the detergent's fat-loving end sticks to the oil droplet and its water-loving end you know, is soluble in water. So it surrounds the, the, the grime and makes the grime soluble in water so it can be washed away. That's the commercial that's on TV. And so that free fatty acid has that ability. It has both water and fat-loving ends. And because of that, it can disrupt membranes in cells and all that. One of the many tissues that would be harmed by this soapy quality is our old hardworking friend, the liver which is why it can't sort fats and control their metabolism the way it can with sugars. So the liver's job is to what, control blood glucose, one of the main jobs. And so it gets first shot at glucose. As it drain, the blood drains the intestine, the glucose from the meal goes to the liver. The liver can store some and send the rest to the body. And it's very easy because they're really small molecules. The liver's job is not to store fat. So you don't want to send this fatty, milky, rich blood to the liver first thing. You want to send it out to what we call the periphery, out to the arms and the legs and the, you know, out to the surface of your body. That's where you store fat. So the body's developed this whole system to handle an oily mixture that needs to go away from the liver. This process of breaking up and reforming triglycerides over and over again, which we have to go through every time we digest fats, is not only amazingly complex, it's also really, really slow. So if you ate breakfast this morning that was um, toast with some butter on it, you've got fat and carbohydrate in your meal, your glucose in your blood would spike at one hour and come back down again. The triglyceride in that food, the oil in the butter, wouldn't make it to the blood for three or four hours. It's so slow because you have to process it differently because it's not water-soluble. 
It's a real hassle. <laughs> so if it's such a hassle, why do we do it at all? Why not just eat carbs, store them as glycogen, and be done with it? The main answer turns out to be pretty simple. Carbohydrates are made of water and packaged in water, and water is really heavy. For every gram of glycogen that you store, you store many grams of water with it. Four or five grams of water are stuck around that gram of glycogen. And so if you're a non-moving organism like a tree or a plant, you store your energy as a carbohydrate. But if you need to move, you need to store energy in a very light form, and fat is lighter than water. We need some cushioning, some soft, uh, fluffy stuff around our organs, and we need to be able to go a day or two without eating. And because of that, we've got a storage form. It's a pain to move it around the body, but it is, it's, it's very, very light, and I could keep running to look for my next meal because, because I have energy stored as fat. So that's the basics of fat and sugar and how we turn them into energy. But there's more than one kind of fat, and there's more than one kind of sugar, and they all do different things. Those differences, and the implications of those differences, will bring us to the very edges of what science actually knows about nutrition, and into some very deep waters of politics and controversy. Good sugar, bad sugar, good fat, bad fat. Join us next time when we wade right into the arguments. Special thanks to our experts in this episode, Dr. Franz Seligson, Dr. Julie Jones, Dr. Lewis Cantley, Maudine Nelson, and Dr. Elizabeth Parks. This podcast was a production of Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit us on the web at scienceandthecity.org and nyas.org nutrition. And also, please feel free to share your thoughts with us about this podcast or any Science in the City program by email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. <laughs>